Hey guys, it's Diana. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nip Section, the official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. No Chuck or Sharon this week, just me and my special guest. She's a former research specialist with a background in microbiology, but you may know her better from her regular attendance at US pen shows and her appearances on the Ink Dependence YouTube channel, which is run by her husband, Mike. She is Audrey Madison, the nib specialist for Franklin Christoph, and I got the chance to Skype with her for a couple of hours last Saturday to hear about how she got into fountain pens, her apprenticeship with Jim Rouse at Franklin Christoph, and what she loves about going to pen shows. Audrey, I think you'll find, is a delight, and I'm so glad to be able to share her story with you all. get into introducing you to our listeners and those who maybe don't know about your work. Sure, I'm sure there are plenty of people don't know, yeah. So um, you're Audrey, you're on Instagram as the Nib Doctor, no spaces. Nope, no spaces. I can explain that later on. I'm not claiming to be the Nib Doctor, but there's a reason why I call myself the Nib Doctor. Because you're a doctor. (laughs) Yes, PhD doctor, not medical doctor. So do not listen to me for anything (laughs) medical wise. What is your doctorate in? And if it's not pen related, what made you change your career? Have you changed your career? I have. So I work full time at Franklin Christoph now. Yeah. So I started back in, I started working shows for Franklin Christoph before I started working there full time. And it was, I think it was 2016 is when I actually started full time. I worked a few shows. It went really well. I you know, you have to have a certain personality to be able to work behind a table because it can be really stressful and exciting too. So I worked a few and then I started full time. And I my PhD though was in microbiology. So I got my um, PhD at the University of Tennessee. I worked as a research specialist at NC State University for five years. I basically managed a lab that was looking at um, water quality issues in Southeast Asia with arsenic contamination. So I was doing that for five years, and it just so happened that the person I was working with was going to be moving to Oregon. And I was not planning on moving to Oregon by any means. And so it just so happened that around that time, Frank and Christoph was looking for somebody else to add to their team. And I'd known Scott Franklin for many years. I've been going to pen shows for, man, I think it's probably since 2010 or 2011. Yeah. And so Frank and Christoph was our local show. And their FC is actually in Wake Forest. It was just north of Raleigh. So they're the local people and it was our local show and we just got to know him. So he knew us from pen shows and got to know him over time. And so that job became available and my job was going to be up in the near future. So I just went ahead and switched. It was really hard in the beginning, just, you know, the big change of commercial work, I guess, and working for Frank Christoph and sort of working for the state in North Carolina. But yeah, I do not regret it at all. Actually, I know that sounds weird, but it's a complete change. But if you could sit there and have your hobby be your full time living and do it well. Exactly. So it's just been really great. And I never you I would have never expected to be in the position I am, but I'm loving it. 
it seems like such an unlikely leap yeah. to go from <laughs> yeah. um, scientific research into, I guess, something that requires a lot of people skills, but also very technical um, skills. Yeah, as well. but there are certain things that go hand in hand, actually, that work well with each other, with at least in terms of the grinding. This is when I first started, um, I was not doing any grinding or any sort of nib tuning at all. Since we're a small company, everyone sort of does many jobs and we're sort of trained with lots of different, you know, jobs at the company just because we're a smaller company. And so we just have to, you know, share jobs as much as possible. And so I mostly did shipping, though. And Jim Rouse, um, he who passed away last mm-hmm. year, he is the one who did all of the nib work and tuning. And he's the one who actually came up with the SIG grind, which I know we'll yeah. talk about later on. And so I was doing that, and I had no real plan on doing nibs at all. It was just, you know, doing the shipping and whatnot. And just over time, Jim was one of these characters that he always wanted people if who wanted to learn to actually teach it to you. He just wanted to teach everyone what he knew. And if you were interested, he was all in. And that was just so lucky for me, because, you know, with my science background, I want to learn. I always just want to see how things work. And with science, a lot of what I was doing was a lot of pipetting, a lot of fine work with my hands that oh, okay. is actually, yeah, I'm tying that finally back into it. But yeah. Very detail-oriented yeah, attention. Very detail-oriented, detail yep, with fine, small motor skills with my hands that really goes well with grinding. So I'm lucky in that aspect. Let me try and go back um, and correct me if I'm wrong. You started working with Franklin Christoph how many years ago? In 2016. In 2016. Yeah. Uh, initially just helping them out with um, shipping, nothing related to nib work. No, yep. Clients, you know, client service and emails, phone calls, that sort of thing. Yep. So you've had this very long time relationship with the company itself. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I'm just trying to express the extent of um, my shock and Oh, not shock, just amazement, I guess, at how this company, which I've only heard about maybe the last three years or so and have very little direct access to, is able to have such intimate effect on people's lives. And I mean, I shouldn't be surprised because they're a small company and they make very small batch products. But um, to know yourself and to hear from inside um, the experience of you know, watching the company grow from the inside. It's its very um, exciting and very oh, interesting. It is super exciting. When I, again, I was a fan of Frank and Christoph well before the whole, the prototypes, antique glass, and all these exciting things that, you know, have come out in the last few years. And it really is like a family, you know, we know we travel across the U.S. together. We... We just learn a lot from each other, and I'm really lucky to have a great team. That you know, a small team, but we work really hard, and we're very thankful for the fans that we have because it's very rewarding. I guess that I wouldn't expect to be so fulfilled in the job that I am, but with people's enthusiasm, I'm just really thankful. 
Can you tell us what your official title at Franklin Christoph is, or is it just an <laughs> amorphous, you're the nib lady? <laughs> no, it's so funny that you asked that. So I saw it as a, on the list, and I'm like, we never talk about titles at Franklin Christoph. We do a little bit of everything. And I'm not the only person at Franklin Christoph that works on nibs and tunes nibs. I'm the only person that grinds nibs, but... Um, Scott Franklin, uh, he also has been working with fountain pens. He's been in the fountain pen industry for a really long time, decades. And then also Mandy, who some people might know, she also has you know, been taught how to do tuning and whatnot. So it's not just me and only me doing tuning. It's other people as well. But I specifically asked him, like, we don't talk about the, what is my title really? And he, he's like, I don't. I don't know, like nib specialist. And I, you know, I think that's a really good term for it is, you know, a nib specialist. I used to be a research specialist in science and now I'm a nib specialist, just a sort of a different trade and, and whatnot. So yeah, I would say a nib specialist. Yeah. So if you you meet someone new at the show and you're asked to introduce yourself, you're like, I'm Audrey. I'm the nib specialist at Franklin Christoph. Or technician. I mean, both those words, you know, go sort sort of hand in hand. And there's also the term of um, nibmeister, of course. I'm sure everyone has heard the nibmeister. And and I believe Annabelle was saying things about, you know, it's actually a male, you know, term. And so trying to, everyone's like, well, what should the female term of it be? I don't, yeah, I don't really know if it needs to be a female ver. you know, I think it's nice to have sort of the, the specialist sort of covers it all, you know, or technician sort of covers it all instead of making it a female or male thing. It's just what it is, mm-hmm. you know? Someone that, um, in Japan was actually saying that the term for a nib specialist or a nib meister in Japanese is already gender neutral. So it doesn't make oh, a difference it? to them. Oh, is it? See, I, yeah. I didn't know that. So you've, Talked a little bit about how you came into Franklin Gustav, about how Jim Rouse, realizing that you had this curiosity and this interest of learning, was yes, very willing yep. to teach you. Oh, yeah. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about what that process was like? Um, how did he get you started? Were you already a little familiar in terms of tinkering with nibs on your own? Yeah. So my... I should mention my husband is Ink Dependence and he <laughs> has a YouTube channel. Yep. I guess I should go back and I never grew up with fountain pens and so I never used them really until I met my husband. I always liked office supplies and pencils and I'm one of those people that had all the gel pens and different types of ballpoints and anything that's new that came out, I would be into that. But I never found pens. It just wasn't one of those things. And then when I met my husband, he was sort of starting to get into it as well his grandfather he actually got a few uh, like parker 51s um inherited from his grandfather so as we went to the show he got those repaired and so that just sort of you know had an emotional connection to a fountain pen you know i think that's a big part of it is somebody getting a vintage pen or having one passed down that really gets people into the hobby and that i think really helped him get into the hobby a little bit more as well and so it was really more going to the first pen show that 
solidified our, we really like fountain pens. These people are awesome. We don't have to be the weird people. But more so, Mike was into it more than I was. I was... I would say in the beginning, I was the the wife that went along and was curious, but it didn't know exactly how much I would be into it. You know what I mean? So at, I see that shows all the time. There's there's the person that's into it, and then there's the person that's there that's okay with it for a while, and then then they're finally done at the end of the day. Like this is enough, and that was me in the beginning. So I knew about fountain pens. I. I wouldn't say that I would sit there and adjust my own nibs or anything like that. But of course, I could clean my pens. I could fill them. So how did you actually learn to grind and also adjust nibs? Yeah, so I would say I started with tuning more than anything. And so at Frank and Christoph, at least, only once in a while do we act... when. That was something that I was mentioning or saw or heard in some of your other, you know podcast is that what what do you consider tuning do you have to ink we don't always ink test pens to tune them we just do a dry feel test to them it's just because we go through so many pens we sort of know how it should feel i guess and so we don't have to go through the whole um inking process to do that but if somebody asks to have something adjusted for flow and whatnot, then we actually have to do ink it. That's one question I was having as what do you consider tuning? But that's the, that's the basic. Every nib that comes through the company gets by me, Scott, Mandy, or other people who know how to tune the nibs. And it goes through this uh, seven-step cleaning and tuning and shimming process that every nib goes through just to make sure it's a nice smooth rider with a nice flow to it because that's one of the things that's really important as a company is having nib options and to have one that works really well and smoothly and flows well so that's the main thing that's the first thing I learned how to do was to tune I learned mostly from watching Jim uh, I would just randomly ask him questions about what he was doing, and he would just generally tell me. A lot of it, unfortunately, is sort of by feel, and and grinding later on that the feel of everything is unfortunately very subjective. But and it takes sort of time to know what the feel should be. But just being able to ask questions and and really, it's more asking questions and watching and then finally doing it yourself and then handing it to the person and say is this what what do you think and then they'll know if it actually is you know tuned well and that's sort of how it started was me asking questions listening and then starting to do it and then having somebody there to say yes or, oh, no, I feel like a, a scratch on this corner or this is a little too dry and it should be wetter, things like that. And it took a while of after doing that and then to actually the grinding, um, that was a question people asked. Before Jim had passed away, I had been learning over time since I worked with him every day, every day, I, I could do it you know, here and there. It wasn't like I had one weekend where I had to learn as much as I possibly could. So it was really a gradual thing. And it was, again, me watching and then 
just trying to mimic what he was doing. So he'd just say, okay, you want to do this motion? I think this is really helpful. That's, this is what I think most people would be hopeful to have somebody just watch them and know what motions to make. And it is a lot of trial and error for yourself of if I do this motion, what does it do? Or if I press this hard, what does that do? So a lot of it is on yourself to try and figure that out. But in terms of actually having somebody there saying, oh, no, you need to take more off the top here, or you need to do this motion. I just learned over time for, you know, maybe about a year before he passed. And he passed July of last year. So a year before that, I just slowly started doing some of the grinding just with the extra nibs that we had around just again, you know, because we have lots of nibs that, you know, were thrown away because of this or that problem. And I just got to use that, which I was very lucky. Most people who are just getting into it, you have to scrounge around to find a nib to work on, you know, and you have to slowly and steadily do that where I was so lucky to be able to have nibs available to learn. And if I messed one up, it wasn't the end of the world. I mean, it's not great. Nobody wants to mess up a nib, of course. But at the same time, I have another one. And it's okay, you know, to for a learning process, I'm not going to get in trouble for it, because it's learning and it's professional development, I guess, to try and get better. It really sounds like the ideal <laughs> sort of apprenticeship, really. It, 100%. And it is like an apprenticeship. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Even though I know there's there's no um, set structure to how you become a nib specialist. No. But if you had to design a course or um, a program, that would be the 100%. ideal one, right? Someone who is patient and really experienced, who is willing to spend the time and have you observe them in their place of work. And also the space um, to make mistakes and to practice yes. and learn on your own as well. 100%. I mean, I know I was – it's rare to be able to have that opportunity. Not many people get to. And I don't think that you have to have that in order to become an expert by any means. You can learn on your own and have nibs. It might take a little bit longer just because of that. But luckily, there are classes that you can take at some pen shows. Like uh, Richard Bender is one of a very well-known nib grinder in the U.S. And he actually has sort of a curriculum that he does a class for a certain amount of hours for a certain amount of money at show certain shows that he goes to. So people can, even if they're not interested in doing it as a company or for themselves, even just for their own pens, they can just take this class and learn the basics and, oh, how should, you know, how do I look at a nib? I mean, that's just one thing is what should a nib really look like? And what angles should you look at it to know if something's aligned properly? I'm sure there are lots of people that I don't know that. And this class is going to actually go through that with you and just minimal smoothings and things like that. So there are classes that you can take in the U.S. that can help out with that for sure. Someone on our um, Facebook page, I think, commented that they wish that there was, oh no, maybe it was Annabelle. She said that she wished that there was, um, something like a family tree that could show the, uh, skills being inherited from generation to generation. Do you know anything about where Jim learnt his skills? I know that a lot of it was just his own 
playing. He had, so if you have not listened to it, The Pen Addict is a well-known um, oh, podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Brad Dowdy. Yeah. Um, not this past year, the year before, at the Atlanta Pen Show, the guest was Jim Rouse. Oh, and okay. so, you, yeah, so if you go back to, what year would that be then? So 2017? Yeah, 2017 Atlanta show. He was the guest, and he had some, he, I heard stories that I didn't know, and I knew Jim really well. So I got to learn some more about his background with fountain pens from that. So he started out, I believe, Again, I could be wrong, but in women's shoes. And he just so happened to work next to um, Bertram, who has Bertram's Inkwell, which is still in. Yeah. And so he had, I don't remember how they had met, but Jim was a really good salesman in women's shoes. And then Bert says, hey, do you want to sell fountain pens or something? And then again, this was decades ago. So he's been working with fountain pens. He had his own Bertram's Inkwell store that he sold pens. And so he had that for a really long time. And then after that, he worked at Hampton Haddon, who owned Schaefer after. Okay. Yeah. So he worked there for a long time. And then he worked at Frank and Kristoff. So I think, I don't know if he was grinding, but he knew repairing. He knew nibs of you know, various kinds. And so he had that background before he started working for Frank Stuff where he started grinding nibs. But he also looked a lot at Mike Masayama's nibs because Frank and Christoph, if, in case you guys don't know, Mike Masayama does, does the needle points, the stubs, and the italics for us. And so he had the ability to just see lots of really good nibs ground from somebody who really knows what they're doing and gets to tune them every day. So by doing that, you can start to learn yourself again. Of I think it was just him over time just playing around and, and learning and then came up with his own grind in the end. This is what I love, um, just hearing you talk about it, because everyone kind of knows everyone or is connected to oh, each other through... Very much so. ...through this deep web <laughs> of knowledge and just relationships, whether it's personal or um, through their own business practices. Businesses, yeah. yeah or past businesses. And I, I know that Tab, who's one of my co-hosts, yeah, he, yeah. he said it's such a shame that um, the Schaefer factory in Australia closed so many decades ago. We no longer produce yeah. fountain pens. So we don't have that infrastructure anymore that um, has um, built inbuilt nib specialists on hand to provide that background for training further nib specialists. So everyone here that I know is self-taught, um, mostly from watching videos by and, and manuals from Binder and other nib experts in the US. Yep. And it's I'm surprised that there are so many people that are grinding nibs and I'm, and there, I'm sure there are lots that I don't even know of doing work in Australia. Yeah. I hear that there's a big community. Again, I don't know a lot about it, but I'm very curious now, you know, listening to some of the things, what the how big the community is in Australia. Cause I know that there are, are lots of countries that it's well bigger probably than the U S but you know, it's in its own, little bubble that we just don't even know about. I, I wouldn't say that we're, our community is anywhere near as large as the US, but because our major cities are quite large, so Sydney has a population of 5 yeah. million, Melbourne's exactly. 4.5 million. So everyone's fairly concentrated in these urban 
um, centers. And I still feel like we're just scratching the surface of all the pen enthusiasts in Sydney and in Melbourne, to be honest. But you're stepping, I mean, you're, you're getting there. I mean, you're getting the shows, you're getting the people who are interested enough to want to grind and learn for themselves, Mm -hmm. which is awesome. You know, that's something that is really going to establish once you start having those people, then they sort of spread the wealth to other people and they exactly. start getting into it. And then it builds up, like you said, that family tree of, oh, I know pens based on this person and they know this person and you all become friends, basically. Yeah. It's, um, when friendship and this sort of hobby can come hand in hand, I think that's when you get the best results. And I've made so many new friends just through being in the community for the last three, oh, three four me too. years or so. Definitely. Do you have any friends who are not fountain pen people anymore? I have friends that are not into fountain pens, but they do understand my appreciation for them. It's just they're more into non-fountain pens like ballpoints and things that they can get at the local stores and whatnot. They they don't like the Bix, basically. They, they learn from us that they want a nicer pen. <laughs> yeah. But that's as far as it goes, basically, is a nicer pen than a Bix. <laughs> I think I sent this to you as a question, but do you think that there is, because there's no, I don't think even fountain pen companies have like a written down list of skills that they expect all their nib uh, specialists to be able to master. But do you think uh, for yourself that there should be, or that there is certain things that a nib specialist should be able to do um, to some level of proficiency before they can call themselves a nib expert? or a nib specialist i mean should they be able to is it okay just to know how to grind or should they also be able to adjust flow um is re-tipping a nib no one knows how to do that i um, was just gonna re-tipping? say no if you do know how to do that you are an expert by far <laughs> that's a different level i'm not that far i'm not an expert if that's the case if that's the bar i'm not an expert <laughs> but where would you set the bar i i do think that it's all subjective. You know, if if you feel comfortable enough to work on other people's pens and then you can give it back to them and they're happy and they're going to pay you, there's, you know, you're probably an expert enough to that, you know, but in order to say you're an expert, I would probably say you should at least, yeah, know how to adjust flow simple tuning. Those are the easiest modifications. You're not changing, you're just you know, adjusting it slightly. Baby's bottom, of course, fixing those types of problems. Yeah, you should know how to do that. To actually grind is a little bit more, you know, you can be an expert at tuning. Are you an expert at nibs? You know, what does all that entail? Do you have to know how to do everything? I, I don't know. Again, there's these subsets that you can say that you can be an expert in each specific aspect of it. Um, in terms of grinding, knowing the basics before you get into the, the fanciest of nibs. Yeah. I think it's best to be able to know how to do a straight italic, do a stub, um, probably an architect, things like that, just as the basics, because in the beginning, that's what people are going to want. They're going to want what they know that they can expect. Like I know what a a smooth italic should feel like, and this is what I want, in order to do anything fancier, I think you should at least know the basics of it. I think that's the 
the best way to say you're an expert is to know those basics. Do you have to have your own specific signature grind? I don't know, per se. I mean, it's to get to that point, you I think you do have to know the basics of it. And I don't think you necessarily have to. I think it will take time. And that's the thing that in order to be an expert, it's a lot of it is time and mm-hmm. learning. I don't really think you have to have that in the beginning, uh, a, a signature grind that you do. It just comes over time. I think that's a great answer. And I mean, it could be wrong too. You can be disagree. I think your answer is particularly valuable because I find that you seem to be situated um, at this unique point between the manufacturer yeah. um, or the maker and what I consider to be like independent nib experts. Yes. So yeah. um, you have a you have this outward facing persona at shows, but at the same time. What you do is often um, done behind behind the veil. So in Very companies much. like Aurora, at Pilot, and so on, they I'm sure they have their own nib experts who just never get any credit. I'm sure, but they do exactly yeah. the same things that you do, and yeah. what a lot of independent nib experts do. Yeah, and I don't know those people either, just like you. Yeah, exactly. Which is fascinating, isn't it? So yeah. um, you you give us some insight into both sides of um, that industry, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And I think it does help having a big presence at the pen shows, being able to have the, you know, sort of customization in person for one tuned to your hand. They can sit, see us there doing it and talk to you if you have any questions or, you know, if you want something a certain way that we can actually fix or work on. It's actually having that face-to-face interaction, which I think it is very special for the consumer as well as for me, you know, because I, of course, want to see a happy customer, somebody who is happy with the nib. Because when I go through orders day-to-day where we do our shipments from our uh, online store, I'm doing it for nobody. I mean, it's for somebody, but... I don't get to see that person open it and write with it for the first time. And I think it's really special to be at a show and have that sort of connection in a weird sort of way of the hand that sort of works on it as well as a person getting to try it for the first time. I know in in Japan, Mm -hmm. Platinum, Nakaya, and I think maybe Pilot as well, those companies, they have what are called nip clinics. I don't think yes, traditionally yes, the nip experts would go to their pen shows, but they do do nip clinics um, in department stores or in specialty pen stores. And do you know if those clinics were sort of the model for the types of pen specialist stations at U.S. pen shows or are they independently evolved um, in the U.S. and in Japan? I honestly have no idea. <laughs> Actually, no, I have I have no idea. I do just know about them because I follow some of the Japanese nib grinders like Nagahara, of course, I follow him and I see him post these things about these nib clinics. I I have no idea. I, I want to take one. <laughs> I just love that because I don't think any of the European companies do anything like that. Yeah, as far as I, I know. know. Of, as far yeah, as I know, exactly. Same. And I, I quite like the idea of the nib expert as not celebrity, but someone who gets credit for what they do. Because as you said, it's something that is quite subjective. 
Right. It, um, oh, yes, definitely. You can probably recognize a nib that you've ground as being very different to the same grind, like a SIG by Jim. I can visually, yeah, I can visually tell. I mean, I don't, I honestly don't know if other people would be able to tell, but I can look at one and see which one is mine, which one's, it's, it's subtle. And I think that's every nib grinder has their sort of signature without meaning to have their own signature that you can see, oh, if you look at enough nibs, you're like, oh, I can see that this is this person because this. And, and yeah, I definitely can tell that. While we're on to signets, um, could you tell me what a signet is? I actually have a few, but um, oh, I'd love to do? hear it in your okay. words. Yes. Do you have a Jim or an Audrey? I have an Audrey because I only bought it this year. Oh, okay. Great. I have five or six Franklin Christophe nibs, mostly not in Franklin Christophe bodies. Um, so a few Matsuyama Cursive Italics, some EFs, and one of your broad six. The broad six, um, yeah. I know it stands for smooth. Stub, stub italic. I already, no, I already no, flubbed it. It's a no. stub italic gradient. Yes. Right? Yep. What makes it special, and is it a difficult grind to master? Basically, the way the simple way to talk about it is it's a more of an everyday italic. So it's a little more of a note taker with a, just a little bit more flair to it than you would get with a stub. So it basically takes both parts of the stub and an italic together in one grind. So the top is more slanted downward, N- not like a italic, but more so at an extreme angle downward. And at the bottom and the sides are going to be, you know, rounded more like a stub. So depending on your angle, if you're more of a vertical rider, it's going to give you a little bit of a sharper line because you're sitting on the top where it's closer to having that flattened top like uh, an italic. But if you sit back a little bit at a normal 45 degree angle, it's a little bit and in between. And if you go even shallower, it's going to be more stub-like because you're sitting on the back. You're not getting the top crispness on the angle there. Um, is it hard to do? It's, I would say it's harder than a stub for sure. An italic, depending on how you, again, lots of people have different ways to do an italic. Um, it depends on how much you take off an italic. If you actually grind off most of the top and the bottom, it's more work because you're taking, you're sitting there longer grinding at it. But I think the SIG is actually harder because of the angles that it has more so than like an italic would. Um, but I do think that it's something that it's very helpful for people who have an interesting, like my husband, Mike, has a very inward he slants his nib inwards when he writes so an oblique actually is best for him having that cut off on the edge and a sig he can write with but a straight italic how he angles it 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 hits right on that edge and so it just scratches for him so just dig into the paper it just digs into the paper for him so having that rounded on the bottom angle he's able to write with it but have a little bit more line variation than he would with the stub. But in order to do the grind, yeah, as again, you have to know the basics and how to do a normal italic and how to do a stub in order to combine it. And that's one thing that I think it's, I think there needs to be a lot, not a lot more. I think there needs to be more forgiving grinds, things that. Mm -hmm. User-friendly. User-friendly ones. And 
I'm going to say something really controversial right now. Mm -hmm. Oh, go for it. (laughs) I don't like architect nibs. Mm -hmm. I've never had one that I like. They just always feel scratchy to me. And Jim, this is a joke between me and Jim. He would always try and make an architect that I liked. And I would always say he never was able to, unfortunately, sorry, Jim, but you were never able to get one that I liked because they always felt scratchy to me. And so I know it's sort of, it's blown up on social media and things as, oh, everyone wants to have an architect or a Naganata Toki, you know, things like that. And I just don't love them. I, I know. Do you consider the Naganata Toki an architect? It's, isn't it one that's more architect-like? Yeah, it, it writes like an architect, but I was just wondering if under a loop it looks somehow distinguishable from what is normally considered an architect. I'm not it, sure about it is, this. It is different, but in terms of what it looks like when you're writing with, the most mm-hmm. part it looks more yes. like an architect for me. That's, yeah. So even those you don't find to be very comfortable to write with? Eh, I mean, I, more so, I guess. It's just... That's so weird. I know to say like a nib grind, I feel like I should like all of them, but it's just not my, (laughs) it's just not my favorite grind, unfortunately. And that's one of your questions was if I could do a grind that I haven't made, what would I try? If I could just come up with something, what would I do? And I think it would be more in the similar vein of where Jim came from and coming up with the SIG is more of an everyday writer that gives you a little bit of flair to it but in an architect sort of way to have something to give you the opposite line variation, but more forgiving for people. It's handwriting. So I've been working, playing around here and there. I, again, have not come up with something I'm fully happy with, but that's just something that, you know, I like to have as I have time (laughs) trying to, you know, make something I think that would be fun to have. Again, there's only so many grinds that you can make. It's With the ball tipping, there's only so much you can do. And I think you probably heard that from most people. There's only so much you can do. But you can always come with your own little spin to it and, and make it your own that way. So... While we're on, still on SIGs, we had a question uh, from a member and they asked um, about the challenges of learning how to make the SIG your own. Um, did you find that the challenges are mostly technical or were there also some like emotional barriers to being able to put your own stamp on it or to adapt it to how you grind? So when I first... When I first started doing it on my own after Jim had passed, it was one of those things that, and yeah, like you're saying, emotionally it was difficult to do it on my own because I'm sitting there, everything I had learned from Jim, I was just trying to take it fully to heart and mimic it 100%. You know what I mean? And I've noticed definitely over time, I've gotten into my own sort of routine of it and... The other thing is in the grinding wheels and the different kinds of grits that you can get to grind, anytime you find one that you like, it is going to be discontinued. No matter what, (laughs) every single grinder that I've talked to, they always get something discontinued as soon as they find out they like it. So when so, you find something you like, do you just buy it in bulk? 100% you buy everything. <laughs> yeah. Like Mark Backus. Buy he, out the store. He, yeah, we we both found this one item 
and it had turned to be a closeout pricing. We're like, wait, why is it? Why is it closeout? Yeah. And and then we find out they're going to be discontinued. And he and I were trying to find out who could buy more of these these grinding wheels because they were going to be discontinued. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was another thing that as things get discontinued, try and find uh, just this the same equipment. And not every one that you get is exactly the same as what you were using before. And so trying to keep the integrity of that is difficult, too. Mm-hmm. And at that same time, I've come into my own. And by having the new, you know, equipment that's come into play, I've been able to sort of make what I've been happy with over time that's similar to Jim's. But mm-hmm. I definitely think it has my own take to it. And since I started doing it, I, I could see the evolution. And I've gotten input from people because there are lots of people who are SIG fans when Jim was was around, and they had all those SIGs from him. And so, of course, I would want to get their opinion on, oh, is this how, – how do you like this and things like that. And there are some differences. I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. I just took what he learned doing the same, you know, motions and everything, but having it in my way that – Again, is for this. This sounds really cheesy, but every nib I do that's sig grind, I just want the person to love it, and I want to make Jim proud. Mm-hmm. You know, if, that's not silly at all. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I always come back to Naginata Togi because yes, you know that um, that's a very well known signature grind, and oh, yeah. there is that same sort of history where you have the son learning from the father how to do it and there's yes. within collector circles there's so much talk about how they vary um, you know generation one Naginata Tokis and gen two <laughs> yes yes I've only heard a little bit about that about yeah differences between oh the father did this and how he does something different and things like that yeah yeah and I think it must be so rewarding to be able to honor um someone that you learned from in that way but at the same time to to take criticism on it must be quite difficult um, yeah and you know i there's something that i've i've heard i know that people try and toe the line of they don't want to make me upset at the same time they're they don't want to sit there and say oh everything is exactly the same because that's just how nibs are it, you, if you have a different per, every person will do something a little bit differently. Even if I learned from him the exact same motions, same everything, it's just not going to be exactly the same. That's just how it is. And so being able to, you know, say that without offending someone, it's a fine line, yeah. Yeah, that's what it means to be handmade, right? <laughs> to, it is. To have yeah. the imprint of the person who made it into it. You can't expect two people to work the same way. Yeah, that connection, I think, is a big thing of being able to send it to somebody have them work on it, put, you know, their livelihood, everything that they've learned for years into the, your nib and send it back to you for you to enjoy. I think it's very special that I think that's part of the reason why some people do send them off, just to be able to have that customization and that personal, you know, little connection. Even if they're not even thinking about it, I think it might be something that they can enjoy by having that handmade aspect. I want to go on a bit of a swerve here. And I need to ask you something that Alastair mentioned. Uh Um, So Alastair Dawes 
he's he's one of my co-producers. He's in Melbourne, and he mentioned that he was a postdoc and teaching at BGSU Bowling oh, Green. Oh, really? Um, in the late nineties to two thousand and one, I think. And he said that he might have had you as a student in. Um, I can't remember. It was some sort of a science or general philosophy class. Um, so he wondered if you miss Bowling Green. I was an undergrad in 2000 and 2001 at BGSU. So it's possible if he was there, I could have had definitely. I met, I do. I love to be at Bowling Green State University. It's where I met my husband. And and, yeah, that's where I met Mike. He was getting his um, PhD or his master's, excuse me, in philosophy. And I was getting my master's in biology. Weird story of how we met, but um, I miss certain parts of it. I love the town of Bowling Green. It's one of those college towns that the, everything in the town revolves around the university there. And so every place that you go is, you know, BGSU here and all the food. And there were actually, you would talk about townies. There was just, the town had fewer townies or people actually grew up there and mostly everyone moved there just for college and then would move after they're done with college but going yes going to football games I again we're talking a little bit about it. the weather was terrible and Bowling Green the the wind I grew up about 40 minutes from Bowling Green and the wind was nowhere near as bad as it was in Bowling Green Bowling Green was at minimum like 35 miles per hour wind Every day. And you would get gusts of like 50 miles per hour. I'm not even joking. It is absurd how windy it is. I didn't play football in those winds. Well, not well, because they were never good at football, <laughs> trust me. Well, one year out of all the years I was there. So I went there for four years for undergrad and two years for my master's. One year they were okay. So we'll go ahead and say it was the wind. <laughs> this is why they weren't very good. The wind was in their favor. <laughs> yeah, that one year. Well, if you um, cast back into your memory and think of an Australian guy with slightly curly, dark hair, glasses, um, that would have been him. <laughs> I love accents, so I had. I mean, if I met him, I'm like, oh, it's the Australian. I don't. Th- I don't remember that. So sorry. Sorry, Alistair. <laughs> yeah. It depends on what class. If you tell me exactly what class it was that you taught, then maybe that's a possibility. Let me check, actually. Oh, you might have it? <laughs> I might have it. I think you told me. So funny story. I'll very quickly mention the way I met Mike was through uh, a mutual friend. And this friend was actually a TA of a philosophy class that I was taking when I was an undergrad. And so when I became a grad student, Uh they have an orientation thing where you get paid a little extra if you had orientation and did it for incoming students. He was the one for philosophy and I was the one for um, biology. So I'm like, I didn't have you for a TA, but I, you know, because there were multiple TAs for the class. But I'm like, I knew you were a TA for this one class. And so he invited me to his birthday party one time and Mike was there and that's how I met my husband. Oh, well, it was Mike who told Alistair that you were both at uh, BGSU. And uh-huh. Alistair yep. was teaching um, evolution or ethology while he was at BGSU. So I don't know if you took it. I took, of those an, I took an evolution class, but I, I had a woman. So Wrong unless man. something Wrong happened, class. I didn't. But no, I mean, I took different, you know, different ones, but I, it 
Oh, yeah, I don't think it could have been him. Never mind. Sorry, Alistair. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, while we're talking about pen shows, I think in in Australia, I said we've had our well in Sydney we had our first two pen shows, 2019 and the year before 2018, and so far there hasn't been a lot of nib work being done at the pen show. Uh, first of all, there's there's time restrictions; we're only one day, and also there's like people who are capable of doing um, nib grinding, they're also busy doing other things on the same day. They're doing workshops. Um, some of them are in Melbourne and don't aren't familiar with shows. So I think it will be a process of getting them comfortable with grinding in public. And that's not – I don't think that's something that people outside of the U.S. or Japan or now getting started in Europe – I don't think it's a thing. It's not a common practice yet among people who are nib experts. So I'd love to know more about what your work process is like while you're at a show. So never seeing that in person. Um, what's your setup when you're at the show? Do you have all your usual tools or um, is it like a stripped down version of what your usual um, equipment is? It is, for the most part, as much as we possibly can with the restrictions of if it's a drive-to show or a fly-to show. If we fly there, everything just gets restricted so much because we can only add so many tools and things to to a bag without it getting too heavy and having too much space. So fly-to shows is stripped out as much as possible. Drive-to shows, there's a little bit more give with what we can have. So I'll generally, definitely, I, I'm actually one of the few people who use a microscope instead of a loop um, for adjusting nibs. I like to have that light. It helps with my science background. I've used microscopes many times counting lots of viruses. So by having, you know, the magnification that I need with it lighted, loops generally usually don't have a light and if they are they're still hard you're squinting trying to see it microscope you have both eyes you can use two hands to um align the nibs which is super helpful but again with a loop you're using two hands and then picking the loop back up and looking at it so i having that every show is important for me personally because that's what I learned from Jim as well as having that two-handed being able to manipulate a nib. So that is generally for what I use at every show. The grinder, I try and have it there. I don't have time to grind nibs at the show for everyone, but I grind them ahead of time. So all the SIGs are made ahead of time. Mike Masayama does all the grinds for us ahead of time in bulk and then gives them to us. So that's how that goes. Um, but I have the grinder there just in case, uh, you know, something comes up that needs a quick, like, little tune-up here or there. Um, but for how the flow goes for the table, we have, depending on the show, if it's a, you know, if it depends on how many tables we can have per show. Sometimes it says a really bu- busy show, ta- table space is limited, so we can only have, you know, a few tables. And so... We try and have at least a half of a table set up for nib work. So I'll have everything set out that I need to work on nibs. The rest of the table has pens, accessories, 
everything like that. And we have people working behind the table that will answer any questions. We also have our nib testing kit. So we have number five and number six nibs. Um, everything from a needle point to a 1.9 music nib sitting at the table for anyone to test out in gold and with steel nibs see if they, you know, because some people prefer gold, but they want to say, oh, maybe, you know, let me compare it to a steel and see if it's worth it. Uh, so people are there to answer questions. Newbies come to the shows, seasoned veterans, people come, you know, test out the nibs, pick what you'd like, and then they get to go into the queue. And so as the, as the queue comes up, I... Um, depending on who's setting nibs, I generally, generally am Scott, Mandy, other people. Um, we take the pen, we get the nib. That's when we do the exact same setup that we do as, and we're in the shop. We do that cleaning, tuning, shimming of all the pens with you there. Um, and then we ink it up as well. So if you want something eyedroppered, we set it up as an eyedropper for you, grease it all up, and we hand it over. Have you try it out? If you want it wetter, we adjust it there. If you want it, um, if there's a little catch on a corner or whatnot, we do that there as well with you sitting there. And if we're backed up, sometimes it happens at San Francisco or D.C. that we have really, really, really busy shows where we have a long backlog. We don't want somebody to sit there and wait hours, you know, trying to get in the lineup. So we just have them let them go shop. And when they come back, if they're ready, we'll have them sit down then and have them try it out. And if anything needs adjusted, that's when we actually get to do that customization at that point. Does that answer the question? It's like, a, it's like a flow. You go from one end of the table to the other of, of us setting up and, and tuning. But, we, yeah, we try and have as, as much of the nib equipment as possible at each show. Yeah, so it's like try, um, select your purchase, get it customized to your own writing style. And meanwhile, you can, like, Joe, trot around and have a look at other stores while you're waiting to be like, yep, yeah, exactly. it sounds like an yep. ideal they try and make it so it's sort of a boutique experience where it's you get to try things out and then you get to have the finished product then. It's not just some random pen that hopefully you like it. You get to try and get it tailored a little bit more to, to what you like. Like I said, I own quite a few printing the stuff nibs and they all write beautifully. And what I like about them is that they're not overly wet. Um, I find the control the flow to be really measured, but um, great for everyday writing. They're not, they're never too dry, but they're never too wet either, which I think is quite common with nibs like Visconti and Pelican. I don't like a nib that's too gushing. Gushing. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, there's a, you know, there are lots do. of people who want <laughs> that. I, like, I want it gushing. And I, I mean, I can understand things feel nice and smooth when you have a gushing nib, you know? Yeah. But that's the way we the we generally tune it for, you know, if you go with like one to ten, we say I forget like six or seven. So something in the more moderate a medium sort of flow. Unless you want it one way or the other, then you can always request that. Is there a typical request that you get from a pen show customer? Um, is it normally uh what do they ask for? Just increased wetness? Is that the most common request? That yeah, generally speaking, unless there's you know, if they want it smooth in a certain spot, especially if you get a ground nib, if you get a ground nib, it's a little bit more, um, 
subjective on corners and how something might feel a little, you know, sketchy. Sorry, or, by ground thin, you mean something like a cuspitalic or a stub? A, or, yeah, a, messy, a, a sig or a masiama ground nib. Those have a, more of a chance to have something feel a little bit more feedback or scratchy. So that's where they'll want it smoothed out. So it depends. Uh, there, it depends also on the clients. Sometimes we'll see people who want one that has a little bit more feedback. And there are some people who want it glass smooth. So we hear that as well. If they want something super smooth, some people don't mind to have a little bit feel to the nib. More often I hear, yeah, they want a wetter nib is probably the most common I hear is a wetter nib. Have you ever been asked to do impossible things? An unusual request such as to turn a fine into a double broad or something like that? Um, Nobody's asked that of me. I would say the least. I don't think I've gotten anything outwardly outrageous. No. But... Things that are, I would say, more un- uncommon. We've had people want ones that are dry. And they'll want, I would say, there's two kinds of needlepoint people. There's the people who want a needlepoint that's a little bit smoother and a little bit medium wetness. And there's the people who want a true needle. They want a needlepoint. They know that that needlepoint is going to have that some feedback to it because that's just the nature of a needlepoint. And so actually having somebody say, I want that scratchiness is pretty rare, unusual too. But we, I definitely do get that sometimes. But having it drier and scratchier are definitely the most uncommon things that I hear. But it has happened. Um, if someone who doesn't have the advantage or the opportunity to study with another nib specialist, if they wanted to learn how to grind their own nibs or to do their own nib tuning, are there any resources or advice that you could give to them to how to get started? You don't have to have the most special equipment. Um, some people use a, you know, a Dremel which are relatively cheap. You know, I think they're, at least in the U.S., I want to say like $100, $200. No, probably like 100 maybe a little under. And that will generally give you... And the accessories that come, that you can purchase with a Dremel are things that you can get at home improvement stores. I'm not sure what they have in Australia, but like there's a Home Depot is what we call it, and Lowe's Home Improvement, that you can get some things like that there. And there's also places on Amazon and other... One place I'll recommend that you can find um, jewelry makers. And jewelry, they have a lot of things that are very helpful for getting started having some um, of the the grinding tools and things that you can use. So definitely check out some of those places. Just Google it. And also, what else would I recommend? And you don't even have to have a Dremel or any sort of mechanical one. I know there are lots of people who just use stones, actually, to hand hand grind them, which... You know, it will just take longer, but, you know, that's, there's nothing wrong with it. And if it's something that, if you're really unsure, it's better, slow is the way to go, basically. So doing something like that to learn 
the similar motions that you'd be doing and moving back and forth is going to be helpful to you. So you don't need to have, you know, fancy equipment doing it that way, going as slow as possible, you know, finding loose nibs or asking around if you can, if there, anyone has any nibs that have been ruined just to learn how to fix them. Or if you, you know, even if they don't expect them to be fixed, do what you can to them. And that's the way to learn, you know, that's to know alignment and modifications on ones that, you know, are messed up is going to be a really good resource for you for a learning experience. And in that case, and looking on eBay is another thing, trying to find, you know, nibs that, you know, people that really don't care about. That's another resource. I've never had to do that, but these are places that I would definitely go if I needed, you know, to find resources for extra nibs, which is one of the big things that we were talking about is having nibs to work on without supplying them out of your own money. Because you, cause you can always get, you know, the the cheapest, you know, wing songs and Jinhao Chinese pens to work on. They're no substitute for, you know, an actual gold nib or... 100%. And if there's one out there that, you know, that's vintage that is you know, what like Estabrook nibs, there's a millions of those out there still that cost, you know, less than $5 or whatever, you can have those to work on and put on different, you know, Estabrooks and whatnot. So don't try to think outside of the box, because you don't have to have expensive equipment, especially if you're getting started. In terms of if you are in the US, um, Richard Bender, again, if you can go to one of his tutorial classes, definitely take that. Um, his website also has a lot of information. There are books out there that talk about pen repair. Um, I cannot remember off the top of my head, of course, but there's a pen repair book that, you know, Jim had lots of books. So I have those as well. That I, I will take a look at. And even though I'm not working on a vintage Schaefer or whatever, I can still look to sort of see what they're using for these repairs. So books, YouTube, check out YouTube. There's definitely people out there that have shown videos of just looking at nibs as well. Just looking at pictures of what different grinders nibs look like. Yeah, just looking at other people's grinds is going to help you figure out what you need to do. I was listening back to um, an interview I did with Ralph, Ralph Reyes. He, oh, yeah. Know him from the Pet oh, Show Circuit. Oh, yeah. We, Ralph is awesome. Yeah. Isn't he lovely? Love he him. really is. <laughs> his enthusiasm. I know. Um, I have one of his epilogue, uh, crown epilogue. Oh, do you? From uh-huh. early 2018. It's just it's amazing. And he doesn't oh, ship yes. internationally anymore. So, Oh, really? I didn't know that. I, oh. I really prized that. Um, he's only making his nibs available, I think, through the pen shows now. Yeah, I think I just read that recently. Which yeah. is perfectly fair. I mean, he's he's one person who can't he, be expected yes. to um, yes. service, you know, everyone who wants a nib. But he was saying last year that as practice, he would take cheap Chinese whether they're Jin Hao's or whatever, and he would throw them at a dartboard to mess up the nibs yes. <laughs> and then figure yeah. out how to fix them. Yeah. And that's a uh, perfect thing too, because as everyone knows, no two nibs will bend the same way when you <laughs> drop them, unfortunately. Yeah. And that is definitely a, a way to, to fix it. Just having 
cheap nibs. And again, even just asking people in your pen group if there's if they'll have any that need to be looked at or as long as they know that there's like a slight risk, you know, in doing so. But hopefully if you're that far along to actually ask for other people's pens that it's going to be good for them and good for you for a learning experience. Finally, what is your very favorite thing about what you do? Uh, do you prefer the moments when you're working at home, just grinding away in your own little world? Do you prefer the the customer interactions? Is that your favorite part or is it something else? The uh, Yeah, the customer interaction is my favorite part. Shows are whirlwind weekends of being crazy busy, but at the same time, that's the one time I get to interact, see what people are, what they like, and just see the joy on their face. And when they, when you get it right, when it's exactly how they wanted it, it just, it just makes my job sort of worthwhile. Like, oh, this is why I'm doing this because, you know, they're really getting uh, what they want out of a nib. And that's the most important. I mean, the most important part of a pen to me is the nib. That's the part you're writing with. Of course, you don't want a pen that's too back heavy or, you know, there's things that you don't like about a pen body, but to actually enjoy a pen, I think having that great nib, that's the one you want to use the most. You're like, oh, this is the perfect nib for that. You just have that go-to. And I always want to have that go-to pen for somebody. And so I often encourage people at shows not to change their writing because if you have to change your writing for a nib that's not one that you're going to want to use every day and then unless it's something they're using for a special occasion only okay that's fine but I'd rather you get one that you want to use all the time and and make it perfect for you instead of making you change your angle or things like that. I absolutely agree with that. And I've had that experience where sometimes I find a vintage pen that I really love, but it only came with an oblique medium or an oblique broad. And I tell myself, well, I'll only use it then if I really want that preferred line. But I never do because my writing does not suit oblique nibs. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and I I hope that it comes across in the most genuine of ways when I say, you know, I want to make this one that you enjoy, even though, you know, maybe it is a SIG or maybe it's a different, you know, ground nib. There's nothing wrong with getting an unground nib too. You know, I'm as a tuner myself, I also do lots of tuning, having a round tipped nib. There's nothing wrong with that. You're going to get a nice, smooth, you know, nib. So yeah, you don't always, not every application has to be a ground nib either. We're moving a little bit away from your nib work. Try to describe for me what the state of your collection in terms of pens and ink is like. Is it is it expansive? Does it merge with Mike's collection? Or do you have like a line in the middle of your drawers where you say, this is Audrey's and this is Mike's? No, our it is definitely what's mine's his and what his is mine. And if he wants to use any of the pens that are quote unquote my pens, of course, I yeah, I don't care whatsoever. I do collect certain pens. I, bef- and up straight up, before I worked for Frank and Christoph, I did used to collect Frank and Christoph. It, they were the local, you know, pen place. And so I really felt a good connection to them. So I would collect those. But now that I work for the company, I love them just as much. But my enjoyment is actually seeing other people get them and enjoy them. And so I do have lots of other pens as well. Um, I collect a lot of, um, limited edition sailors. 
is it's basically the one thing that I collect more. So Mike collects Rotring cores as well as Diplomat arrows. Yeah, Rotring cores are terrible. And <laughs> if you've never seen them, I'm sorry, Mike. I love you. But those nibs are the pens. They're just... If you if you've never seen them, stop right now and Google it and let me know what you think about the cord. It's pretty expensive. We don't have really really expensive pens. Like we don't have any uh, Nakias or anything like that. We don't. He has one Arushi pen, and a lot of ones that we get are a bit from you know some of the custom makers that we have in the U.S. that make their own blanks. So like Jonathan Brooks, um, we have some Ryan Krusak. He makes uh, wooden pens and one's made out of shed antler. So natural materials. Oh, wow. And yeah, so he does amazing work as well. So if I don't know if you guys know any of those people, but there's I've seen them on others. Instagram. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we just, we try and support lots of different companies and around the world too. Again, yeah, I love sailors and we like platinums and some of the european brands for sure the diplomats and we pelicans love the, Pel- the pelican hub is coming up are you going to the yep, pelican yep, hub? I, of yep. course i am yeah <laughs> the last uh three years now so this is the fourth sydney pelican hub this year yep i'm excited about going i did not sign up in time because nobody reminded me so i'm going to go Mike ahead didn't remind and- you no he claims he did <laughs> he did not remind me so i'm just going to go ahead and and just come and see what happens. Uh, we have a, a, a really close-knit group, the Raleigh one, so it'll be fine. I know the Hubmaster, and I think he'll let me in. It's fine. Oh, well, I knew the Hubmaster um, for the last three hubs, but um, after last year where we had about 80 people, oh, um, wow. Oh. Hub, he decided I need to take a break. <laughs> it's getting too big. It's so much work. Um and so this year, um, someone a little bit unfamiliar to us um, is being Hub Master. So it'll be interesting. It'll be something a little bit different. When you have that many people, it's so tough to, yeah, to find a venue that fits that many without, especially in cities. The thing is with Raleigh, I mean, there are places you can go that are free that will fit enough people that we have. But when you're, yeah, like New York and places nothing is going to be free and in the spaces that you need on a friday so night as and well. fr- exactly yeah, friday night. Friday. yeah. <laughs> so in sydney we normally meet on a saturday afternoon or a sunday afternoon yeah um, ours is sunday a lot of places yep. are free um actually I, i'm i'm going to um a small meetup this afternoon where a listener from the uk i think is coming to sydney and he just asked if he could meet up with us and see what it's like here in Sydney. I said, oh. yeah, that'd be great. But anyway, this is something that I ask all guests, if I can remember, um, onto the podcast. What are you writing with today, Audrey? I have been writing with the um, Bung Box Sailor uh, limited edition for the San Francisco show, Hello San Francisco. So it's sort of that coral and light blue. Yep. So and. Oh inside. my goodness. So it's a Pro Gear Slim, and inside, I didn't know this, but they showed it to me. But they had the converters that have little drawings on oh them. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and this one has, oh, I don't, you can't probably see it, but it's a, um, 
the gold the Golden Gate Bridge on it. Oh wow! So yeah, this is inspired by the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco for the show, and I was so happy. I had we were really busy in San Francisco, but I had one morning right before the show started that I could go shopping, and I went immediately went over and got that. It has a music nib on, which is the only sailor nib I didn't have. This thing is a huge nib on it and it's it's a little unruly but that's fine it's the only one i didn't have and I, it's filled with um jacques herman uh blue austral austral i I'm, I'm butchering it i'm sorry anna and cantadora she's behind but she gave a sample that to me and i do i love it it's really really nice and those are fairly newish, I think, inks as well. So, yeah, that's what I'm using right now. I have, I always have a large collection of ones that I'm, I switch in and out at work and whatnot. So that's just one. I need to switch the nib out, but I'm enjoying it a lot. Does the nib have any special engraving or etching on it? Or is it just see. the standard? No, I think, I think it's just the one that says um, ink tells more. Oh, the bum box nib. Wow. Yeah. That's that amazing. Bum box nib. Yep. Yep. I haven't even seen photos of that pen on Instagram. Really? I don't think so. No. Oh. Well, um, Was it on your Instagram? No. I posted a story with it. Okay. It's Mike just put it on Instagram today with his glasses. He just got brand new glasses, but it shows it on there. But the things that I use most is actually what I used to grind with are basically pen bodies at, at Frank and Christoph, just, just random pen bodies that I use for grinding. That's a certain height for and the right angle for what I'm used to. So I, I use the exact same ones that, that Jim actually had. So I try and keep everything as authentic and the same that he had as possible. So when you're grinding the nibs, uh -huh. are they what, what body do you have them on? Is it just I have a it Christophe body? Yeah, so it's a uh, 03, just the main body for a number six nib, and the number five nib is actually I want to say it's just a random one that was made for Jim, and that's the only one I've seen. It's not a normal pen body shape, but I have it said for a number five. It has a sort of the right height again that they made yeah. for Jim. It's great. Yeah. Love these little stories. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I have so many of them and I people at the shop probably get sick of it, but yeah, I try and keep as much of Jim's stuff around as possible. So, it's again, I don't I don't want to ever get rid of anything because even though it's sort of at my quote unquote my desk where I work, it's always I always and what people will say, oh, you're taking over for Jim. I'm like, no, I mean I can never fulfill Jim's spot, so I always feel like it's everything's still his. You know what I mean? I don't want to you know move things too much or get rid of anything because it's just special to me because they were his. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite pen and ink, or are they all your babies? Hmm, I have. A few that are special, but generally speaking, I really go through a lot of... Usually the ones that are most special to me are ones that are gifts from people. And so I got a Pelican for Christmas, not last year, but the year before. And so that one's really special because Mike got it to me, for me for Christmas. Um, I don't have any, you know, ones that are from family passed down like Mike does. So I don't have have that unfortunately. I have some vintage pens though. I really enjoy um 
some vintage Estabrooks. And I have a friend who is in the community that sells vintage Estabrooks. Jesse? Jesse, yep, exactly. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Jesse. So <laughs> I love Jesse, and she sells those. So those are, you know, special to me as well. But yeah, I mean, there's not really one that I always go to it depends I, I rotate through a lot of my pens I actually there is one that is special I don't use it very often but um it's actually a Fagionato pen do you know about Fagionato no. so F-A-G Fagionato I don't know if it's two G's or one G I-O-N-A-T-O Fagionato but yeah anyway he um was from where is he from now this is gonna bother me was it from france i want to say he's french i'm pretty sure but let me see did it say french is the thing i'm wanna i'm not 100 percent sure yes from provence okay so thank you (laughs) i didn't even get that far but i have one of his pens i got it from patrick who is french uh from papier plume has a store uh down in um in New Orleans. And I got that pen at the Arkansas pen show, not this year, but the year before. And I just, it just called to me. It was a celluloid. So it's more of a brittle thing. So they're harder to make. And as soon as I got it, I showed Jim and he immediately ground it to a SIG for me. And then I just found out, um, I think it was this past December, um, um, Mr. Fagiano actually passed away. So both people who worked on the pen, it's very sad, passed away in the same year. So that's just a special pen. I mean, I will never get rid of it. I, I mean, I don't like to use it. That sounds bad. I mean, I, it's just special, so I don't really use it. But it's one that is really close to my heart. Yeah, yeah the celluloid, it is delicate. A, yeah, like exactly. Yeah. yeah. I can understand you wanting to hold on to that. And is there any special ink that holds... Well, not necessarily um, significance, but that you really love to use and keep using. Over yeah, over. I mean, I use the Franklin Christoph inks most common. I'm not marketing or anything. I'm just saying that they're ones I use most often. They're really well-behaved inks, so I really like those. But the other one that I like and recommend to people is um, actually Aurora Black, which is, I mean, it's not the most exciting thing, but I find it's really good as a problem-solving ink and in that it's always very wet. And so if you're having a nib that you're not sure if it's a, a nib slit problem or if it's a feed issue, as soon as you get the pen, if you put that in there, it's going to, it should flow in everything. It's just so wet that it's going to tell you if it's really a, a problem with the pen or not. And not just an ink-paper combo, nib-paper combo, because those things, it can matter, you know, if some inks don't work with certain nibs for whatever reason, and it's one of those unspoken, who knows why, but it's just certain combinations don't work. Generally, it works with pretty much everything, and yeah, it's just a really nice problem-solving ink. I have two bottles of Aurora Black, and I never use them for regular writing, but I... Aurora Black is usually the first ink that I fill a pen with. So whenever I get a new pen, I fill it with Aurora Black just to test it. <laughs> it's, see, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's 
Yep, that's perfect. Well, see, I'm glad I'm not necessarily wrong in that. But yep, that's as you know how that reacts with things. And I will really tell you what's the properties of the nib or, you know what I mean? Just gives you, if you have any issues, it's a good one to start with. Yeah. Well, it's been so inspiring um, to hear you speak with so much professionalism and also passion about what you do and just learning. I, I didn't expect going into this interview to find out that you had such history with Franklin Christoph just because um, we're not really privy to that information looking outward, especially from a different continent and not attending any of the shows. Um, but it's been amazing to learn more about the company and about Jim and about your work with both the company and um, your colleagues. So thank you so much, Audrey, um, for opening up and talking to us about it. Oh, you're too kind. I'm so glad that, you know, it's one of those things that you never think is interesting to yourself. And it's always, you know, really great to, you know, be able, I want to hear more stories about Australia and the community. It's amazing because you you think that it's not going to be interesting, but it's, yeah, it's these I really personal don't. stories and personal yeah. histories that are so interesting. And what I really enjoy um, sharing with the podcast listeners and the feedback I get the most rewarding feedback tends to be on those sorts of episodes because you're showing, you're revealing an aspect of the industry, which is the reason that they got involved to begin with. You know, people are not into fountain pens just because they like writing or because they um, are collecting something that is valuable. They do it because it is something that has a personal connection to the people who made it, who gave it to them, who worked on the nibs. And that um, personal connection is what we're hoping to also um, be able to help establish. And sharing stories like yours is, I think, a really valuable part of building community, um, both in Australia, in the US, and across boundaries, hopefully. And one day, one day, Fingers crossed. Um, me, Sharon, Chuck, my co-hosts, um, we would love to be able to fly down and come to Washington or San Francisco or Raleigh or any one of your pen shows. Please um, do. I would the love dream. to have you guys. <laughs> I mean, I know it's very expensive. I've, I've it's very far. And, but I think you guys would have so much fun. The, the pen community has just grown so much at pen shows it's it's really friends getting together and meeting at all the shows and that's i think it's really exploded in the last couple of years just people going to the shows more than anything just to see their what they consider friends they get to go online and get to know people on instagram get to know know people on reddit slack all these other places and never meet them in person, but then go to to a show and just having this great connection. I'm not being that weird person who loves pens that they sort of make it as their vacation or take time off just to go to a fly to a different show to see their friends. And yeah. I, I feel like being part of the community, I can go anywhere in the world and be able to reach out and find someone you, who find I've never some, met before, yep. but I will have something in common with them because yep. we're in the same hobby. <laughs> yes. And that's definitely all over. Thank you so much, Audrey. Well, thank you. Do you want to um, finish us off with a non-fountain pen related recommendation for our listeners? Sure. So I would say 
animals are really close to my heart. We have three cats and a dog who are basically all rescue animals. And uh, one of the places that we got our dog Scraggles, she's uh, we got it from Saving Grace, which is in Wake Forest. And right now I know that they are taking in shelter animals from the hurricane that's just gone through. And so even if you don't have to donate to Saving Grace, but just think of a local organization that tries to save animals of whatever type that you're interested in. Instead of just getting a coffee, just giving a couple dollars for any of the local, you know, animal shelters, whatnot, is just really helpful to them. Or if you have Amazon and they have a wish list, just, just buy a little something for them and and just just think of the animals. I love them. I was reading this article, I think, about the Bahamas. And oh, yeah. Saying, there was one lady who brought about 70 to 90 stray dogs or dogs who had been um, separated from their owners. Yeah, which happens all the time. The it's, it, I mean, I know the scale of human tragedy is humongous. 100%. But think of the animals as well, not just pets, but also livestock, um, farm animals who are whose lives are completely um, in your hands and who yes. have no means to, you know, rescue themselves and are just at the mercy of the elements. Um, it, yeah, do what you can. Again, you don't have to, but just, just think of the animals. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, think of the animals. Thank you, Audrey. Well, thank you I so much. I loved having Jess. you on. Thank you so much. <laughs> have me back anytime. Yay, absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Past and future episodes of this podcast can be found at thenipsection.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hop onto iTunes, rate us, review us, recommend us to your friends. Want to share your thoughts, suggestions, feedback? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thenipsection at gmail.com. You can also comment at us on the Nib Section Facebook page or at the Nib Section on Twitter and Instagram. The Nib Section is the official podcast of Fountain Pen's Oceania. Our producer this episode was Diana Dye. Recording and editing was done by Diana Dye. Special thanks to Audrey Madison. Our music was composed by Michael Pierce. Our logo was designed by Will H. Smith with artwork by Melissa Graff. Thanks for listening.